Hello and welcome back to the Red Sector, a podcast about speedy motorbikes. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Sector MotoGP. On today's episode, we introduce you all to a new host of the Red Sector, as well as we di- as discuss the news that has come out in MotoGP. I'm your host, Matt Polanski, who you can follow on all social media at Matt Polanski1. I'm joined today by the Walking Talking MotoGP Wikipedia page that is BunnoGP, who you can follow on Twitter at BunnoGP underscore and Instagram at BunnoGP. So, Bunno, how are you doing today? Yeah, no, I'm um, I'm really good, actually. Uh, really excited about this episode. have been for a while. Taking a couple of months to sort of get around to doing it and whatnot um, in terms of everything involved. But, yeah, it should be good to dissect some news and introduce our new member. Mm-hmm. So, without uh, further delay, uh, we would like to introduce you all to someone that, if you're in the Discord, which if you're not, you can find the link in our Twitter bio, uh, she has been in the Discord for a long time. She's very vocal. She's one of the smartest people we know in there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Elisa to the show. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Elisa. I'm from Finland, and I've been a MotoGP fan for about two years now. So I'm excited to join the podcast. <laughs> and we're we're very pleased to have you here. Yeah, and like I said, you've been in the Discord for I think since it started, if not like yes, right oh. after it started. Yeah. And you're always you have you come with such knowledge. And uh, yeah, whenever we started talking about adding a fourth member, your name was one of the first that went on the list. You know, it does a lot to be the loudest in the room. You usually get noticed, so that's that's the way to go in life. Yeah, no, I I think for a long time we've been looking to um, extend with the amount of hosts that we have with me, Josh, and Matt. Um, and frankly, it's not even a case of like you know, any other reason other than we wanted to have, have Elisa with us. And thankfully she obliged. So <laughs> we've not annoyed her too much and we've not pushed her too much to uh, come and join us. So we're very happy to have her on board and going forward should be even better because as we were just discussing before we started recording, we have two nerds on the um, on mm-hmm. the red sector now. We have me and Elisa for all your stats and complete and utter useless information that nobody other than the nerds will love um but we we have our select audience for that i'm sure Mm -hmm. so lisa why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself you know how you got into moto gp you know your history with motorsports you know tell us who you are oh i well my history of motorsports started with formula one i've been watching that since i was two years old so like 2002 probably and it's been it's been a long way since then. I've watched like MotoGP like a few races. I remember seeing bikes like when I was five years old. But I didn't watch MotoGP until the ending of 2021, when I realized that there was going to be a finished GP. Sadly, it didn't happen. But I thought, you know, you know, I thought, you know, if I can get tickets. Bikes are fun to look at, and so I thought, you know, why not watch it? And I watched, I think it was the Aragon GP that I watched first, and it was an epic race, I think, with the ending end. And that's basically how I got into it. And then I went back and watched the whole season and just got completely into it. That's 
basically that he, but also like bits and bobs here and there, like listening to other Formula One podcasts, mentioning MotoGP, and yeah, that's basically the reason I got into it. Nice. And do you think starting, even though you've like got into it for the last couple of years, do you think that you've enjoyed watching the modern years, or do you actually go back and watch anything further back? Because obviously, I mentioned before that um, we we seem to be quite nerdy in terms of all the the stats and whatnot. But um, you clearly have a quite a passion for previous to when you actually started watching it, don't you? Yeah, I think it's it's important to understand a bit of the history of the sport. And well, the main main rider I got into what GB was for because I like I like sports with a story and I got into for it Mark Marquez because of his story basically coming back I saw stuff about the Saxon ring race so I watched that back so I went back and watched like his whole career so I've seen the older water GB seasons since 2013 and I went back and watched a few races and I'm planning to do more but that's also basically when the bikes changed I think it was 2012 so I thought that would be an interesting way to interesting era to watch with a lot of changes and a lot of riders so that's how long I've basically watched for yeah and do you have even though you've said um, Mark was a big uh, part to play in getting into MotoGP and sort of doing a bit more research in it do you have any particular rider or team that you follow obviously you said that um, a Finnish GP would have been kind of like the top of your list in terms of you know to go to and whatnot sadly because of unforeseen circumstances that's not happened um but do you you have a team or do you have any particular favorites obviously we have the finish link with aki ayo or how do you want to quickly do perfect Uh, i can say it in finnish words aki ayo anyone is interesting yeah um well basically since there are no finnish riders i think the last center was was well mika kallio is the KTM test rider and then Nikki Tolli rode for Moto E at some point. But yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've just decided that every rider who has ever risen for Akiayo is now an honorary Finnish person. So <laughs> that, that's off the grid. So basically almost every time someone wins, I can be happy for it. So you know, I if I had the power I would give Mark Marquez like finished citizenship by my <laughs> achievement, but you know. Well, we yeah. can we can all dream anyway, but yeah, I said Mark is my favorite writer, and I follow him closely. But I, I I like all the writers. I think Fabio is the very next one I like, and then it's it's bits and bobs there. And yeah. I like him. I like the personality. I don't really do teams. Like on the Formula One side, I I have always been a Ferrari fan, and I will die on that hill like like until the day. I went to Baradella as like my my trip to the Holy Land last mm-hmm. year, so that that was like the. But on the MotoGP side, I don't. I, I like the riders. If my favorite rider rides for that team, I like the team. But like, I I don't care which team wins. Currently, yeah. I want Honda to do better because I like all of the riders. But mm. but like the team itself, I don't care for it. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, saying that, not to go too far off from MotoGP, 2007 must be a uh, particular favourite for you then, with Kimi Raikkonen obviously winning on a, in a Ferrari, which is yes, absolutely, yeah, special year. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite weird that you say that actually, in terms of well, not weird, but interesting that you say that with the teams and riders, because um, 
I've sort of seen across Twitter recently in like the last couple of years, I would say, how I think the shift has now gone more from teams to riders. And I think mm. old school F1 fans go for teams and old school, I think motorsport fans go for a team. Whereas I think mm. now the shift is becoming more and more to a rider. And I think social media has a huge effect on that in terms of what they post as an individual and what right. they strive for and what they sort of put out. Um, so it is quite interesting that even though you're not, you know, heavy on one particular rider, the team side of it doesn't play that much of an effect as opposed to how you favor riders as such. So it's it's quite interesting to hear that that side of it because obviously, Matt yourself, you're KTM and Red Bull because of Red Bull more so mm. KTM. Um, myself being Yamaha because of growing up with Rossi. Um, and then Matt, uh, Josh, sorry, who was Suzuki, has now jumped ship to Honda. But we'll skip past that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's it's good because that then means that we all sort of have, you know, different favourites and different riders that we all like. Um, I wouldn't want it to seem like we're all sort of favouring one guy or all against a certain team <laughs> or whatever. And I know we don't try and put that across anyway, and we don't want to be like that and, you know, be all on top of one team specifically but it is quite good to hear that we have a quite diverse favoritism across all four of us um doing the podcast yeah. so that's that's really nice to hear really do you have a particular race that got you i know you said aragon which 2021 for anybody that can't remember was um peco versus mark which was <laughs> not a bad race to start with to put it to put it frank um do you have any particular races that if you were to advise or sort of get anybody into GP, what race would you pick to have somebody get involved with? Do you have any, any favourites to recommend? Mm, I think it's hard to say there are many good races. Arsene has given many good races. I think 2016 was a good one. And all, I think, like in general, I think the Philip Island 2015 obviously now has like a kind of dark shadow, but it's a really good race. And I think last year's Philip Island race, I think it's it's a modern classic already. It will go down as one of the best races. I think not only because of the racing, but because of the storylines with Rins winning what we then thought would be Flex Suzuki's last victory, and probably more emotion with that because it was the first victory of the season and with Marquez on the podium for the hundred podium and back on there and in the championship drama. I would I would recommend one of the races in Phillip Island in general because they are always good ones and I think that's where we get the best of MotoGP in general, you know? Yeah, I think Phillip Island's always a good good recommendation. I mean I could literally name drop now probably ten Phillip Island races and you'd probably enjoy nine of them at least you know what I mean even if you weren't that big a fan of the sport if you were to just go in and watch Phillip Island and spin a wheel of whatever year you'd probably enjoy it um is there a race and I'll let Matt ask you a question after this but I want to know if there's a race you could go to what race would you pick if it wasn't maybe Phillip Island would be a pick but or do you have any that you're going to it would be a pick I think I'd love to go to Australia and I think the scenery there it sounds so amazing but also mm, hard to say like probably something about Mugello uh, I know it's not the same after the Rossi effect has disappeared but I think it's still an Italian race and and anyway if I, if I could call, go also to Turkey of the Americas when Marcus wins there that would also be awesome so <laughs> yeah yeah I mean 
you're ticking many boxes because obviously we have Matt in America, me who's mm. been to Mugello and absolutely loved it, even post Rossi, which I should have gone when Rossi was racing, but even post Rossi, I can definitely recommend it to anybody listening. Uh, incredible track, incredible scenery, incredible place. So uh, Philip Island, Mugello in America, I think you've picked three pretty decent races there, Matt. Mm-hmm. So what was it that like made you fall in love with MotoGP? You know, you, you said watching Aragon. What was it that like you were like, yes, I have to what now watch every bit of this? Uh, I think it's a gradual process. Like it's the same as when you ask, well, why did you fall in love with your significant other? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, they are they. I think mm. uh, coming from Formula One, obviously the racing hasn't always been the best. So watching bikes go that fast and actually do overtakes, it's it's a selling point. I think most fans of Formula Racing would, would say so. And mm. and as I said, I think the big reason was the you know the Marquez effect for me because uh, I, I I enjoy the redemption story of 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 him so much. I you know want to see him do better after after the injuries and you know kind of seeing the who had been seen as a, as a bit of a villain in the MotoGP achieve this kind of success, hopefully, after the injury. I think that's a big selling point. And I think also it's like, I've watched other motorsports, but I think it's always the connecting things when you get to know know the riders a bit more and a little more of the stories behind. Like, I also was really invested in the Silverstone race because I was so excited for Aleish to get his first podium with Aprilia. It was, mm-hmm. it was one of the best, best things I've seen. At that point, and I actually, I actually cried when Alex won the race. I have a photo because of this, so it was. He's actually one of the other favorites I had, like beginning to watch watch the series. That's so interesting, I think, because Alex for, and I'm not, and I don't want to categorize him in this, but I think for a good while was seemed as. Not a journeyman, but almost like the kind of guy that had never really won. He'd never really done bad. He just sort of filled a gap. And he, I don't know, like the progression never really seemed to pick up. But these last few years, he's almost became from that and partially a bit of a villain to kind of a fan favourite. Um, mm-hmm. And you obviously being lost. a newer fan, is is really interesting to hear that Aleish and, you know, my, my younger sister, who's always been a Marquez fan, having kind of been you know grown up in the era of dominance of Marquez has obviously still loves Mark but does like Aleish because he's sort of been in the sort of distance and now he's kind of come out of nowhere and he's you know he, he, he's got such a great relationship with his team he always brings his kids and like the kids thing when he um, got his podium at, at Silverstone even though I was at the track we saw it on the TV of him like running towards his kids and everyone, even everyone in that crowd was just like, that's such a nice moment. Um, mm-hmm. So it is, it is one of those um, weird sort of shifts. I think when, when you have sort of villains, I mean, Paul Spargo through his junior career was always seen as sort of the aggressive kind of rough and tough guy. And I think for a period, Paul Spargo at KTM had that sort of, chip on his shoulder and you know like the comments between him and Miguel Oliveira it was it was quite back and forth and I feel like he's just got got to that age where he's he's kind of doing what Aleish did in that he's he's starting to become a a bit of a bit of a nice guy and Mm. fans are starting to take to him a little bit more Marquez you either loved him or hated him because of what he's been through everyone loves that redemption story naturally 
So it's it's quite cool to see the shifts have changed depending on where you came in to um to MotoGP, which leads me on to asking um before we move on to the news. And apart from a prediction, what are you looking forward to the most in 2023? I think, I mean, as everyone, I think we're just waiting for the season to start. I think. <laughs> apart from but, that, apart from the rating Honestly, it's either the Ducati rivalry between NA and Peko, which is really exciting, or, you know, I have to say, seeing Marquez back hopefully on 100%, hopefully for the, the whole season. I think even if you are not a Marquez fan, which I've seen a lot of people comment, I think he makes the racing more exciting because he's always aggressive and never, like like you know, when Mark's going after you, he's never going to not try something. So that's mm-hmm. that's something that always makes races exciting, even though it might lead to incidents and all that, but still. Yeah, I mean, it was it that was the, exactly the case halfway through twenty twenty one when he started to come back through Portimao and different races, and he was just starting to like bed himself in. And then the the Austria race happened with Brad Binder and the the wet track. But before that, Pecco, Mark, and Fabio, it was like three or four laps where they were just back and forth, and it was some of the best racing that because of the story of Brad Binder, obviously deserved the the applause and you know. The, uh, the credit that he got, it was so good to see Mark back because you knew instantly when they were like lining up next to one another, he wasn't going to go, I'll sit behind him. It was like, no, he's going to go for it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think Mark adding, definitely adds to that. Yeah, adding on to that, I think we were robbed of the Fabio and Mark fight after 2019, mm. you know, because, because he got injured and stuff like that. So I think those two also, I think they've got a buddy-buddy now. And I think <laughs> Mark's been, like, speaking up about Fabio and Fabio's whole... Fabio's, like, commenting on every post Mark makes, makes on Instagram, which is really funny to me. Yeah. But I, I think if they get on fighting on the track, I think it could be, like, a big fight. <laughs> so, yeah. That's yeah, also you, something. You definitely, you definitely wouldn't have seen that between Biaggi and Rossi or yeah, Gimeno no. and Rossi or definitely Stoner and Rossi. Um, mm-hmm. You just never would have seen that. But it's a different time that we're in now and it's sort of nice to see them play nice off track because obviously it makes for good good coverage. But at times when we get those little spouts and whatnot, not necessarily between Mark and, and Fabio, but obviously that adds to even more views. But I do think that a prime for what we've seen so far, Fabio, and a what would have been or can be current Marquez, um, I think it's a very interesting prospect on top of Bastianini and Pecco and then all the rest of it. So I mean, yeah, just seeing the Coda race where Mark got back from the back and he was fighting Fabio in the last laps and I have actually had the had this had the camera on because it was actually like it was every corner they were overtaking each other like it, yeah. it was a tough fight so that was for more races i think that's i think in general i think everybody hopes for just more races with overtakes i don't think overtaking doesn't necessarily make for the best racing like it's not the only, only measure but i think it still helps to see a lot of overtakes for the bleed and strategy and stuff like that yeah so uh like I said before, we're very pleased to have you here. We're very pleased to, you know, be able to have a fourth member here so we can put out more content. And that was one of the things, you know, when we started looking for another host was somebody who could 
you know, help us put out more content. And you're some of the stuff you've even started recommending, like, you know, you're very statistics driven. You know, you were showed before the podcast started, uh, Elisa was showing us she has a whole binder of statistics for qualifying. So this is the kind of stuff you're going to So now we've got a history nerd and a statistics nerd on the show. So we're just going to be able to pump out a lot more stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so that's our, that's Elisa. She's our new host. So um, yeah, we'll be putting out a lot more with her soon. Um, one thing she suggested, which I th- which, which we thought was a great idea, which we'll let her you know, explain more of, uh, she's going to recommend books. She's read a lot of, Books on MotoGP. So, Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as someone who always reads books, and I think that's one of the ways to. I just like to spend time, and I think I don't know about you guys, but definitely not everyone is a book type of person. So, I think you know, why not read a lot of it? And thought you know, I would recommend the best ones, and obviously, you know, there are a few ones out there that maybe someone's wondering if they should buy or get. So that's something, and I actually right now. Uh, because it's still January, I would say that uh, Matt Oxley has the book Valentino, All His Races, and I think it's like half price mm. off. That's a good book. I own it. It has a lot of pictures and a lot of information. It's a good one. I mean, not that text heavy, so it's better. If Even if you just like picture books, that's that's greatest for you out there. So, yeah, any thoughts? But yeah, probably we're going to do something about the books I've read and just recommending them. I've listened to a few audiobooks as well, so yeah, Matt Oxley is a great um, journalist and writer anyway mm-hmm. for, for MotoGP. Anybody that is into that side of things and you're more of a reader than you are maybe into like your YouTube or podcast. I mean, God knows why you'd be listening to us if you, if you are. But, <laughs> um, if, if you are more into the um, to the book side of things in GP, Matt Oxley is always a good place to start. Anything from Matt Oxley to Julian Ryder or any of those guys are absolutely solid. Um, so I'm sure Elise is going to be throwing that at us every episode with multiple suggestions, which is really good to be fair, because I, I should read a lot more. And mm-hmm. at, at my like family home and whatnot, we have hundreds of MotoGP books that I am just yet to get around to reading. Um, but yeah, I'm sure Elisa can probably recommend me a few and I'll, I'll probably nerd out on those as well. So um, yeah, we've got that. And then now I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, we're going to move on to some of the news that's, come out in the week with Matt's new basically (laughs) for anyone listening Matt has become obsessive over a spin the wheel idea so everything I think Matt decides what he has for his dinner by spinning a wheel no that's Um, usually a coin flip uh, I mean it's good for indecision you know to have some options true True. I can be very indecisive when it comes to deciding like food or like maybe an activity in like future weeks or whatever and a spin the wheel just sort of flattens all of that so um yeah it it helps for that and i got the idea from a uh a podcast i listened to they talk about the um do you want to plug it soccer club around here they're called mongols and uh they've a host got a click a spinner wheel to talk about topics and they've yet to use it they just ramble on and uh but he he said where, he where has does one. where does that sound familiar um. <laughs> i can only imagine 
And he even said about it, he got one where he ordered one where it's a whiteboard so you can write stuff on there and it actually spins. And I'm like, they make those like they have those online and they make noises too. Yeah, like the the ones that click as you go around. Mm-hmm. It'd be super so, cool. Yeah. So whenever I heard that on their most recent episode, I'm like, that's actually not a bad idea. Like if you have a lot of news you want to talk about, you're not sure where to start or you know stuff stuff like that. It's like it's just throw up a spinner wheel, throw a couple topics on it. So uh, I'll pull this up now. I We've got four topics on there, so we'll spin the wheel and see which one comes up first. And we have... Mark Marquez documentary. Oh, absolutely <laughs> perfect place to start because we're basically yes. coming straight off of Marquez to... And an amazing tie-up to the situation, like, perfect. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so for anyone listening... If you're not aware, and I don't blame you if you're not, because it has literally sort of come to fruition more so the last day or so with the with the trailers and, and stuff. So if you've not seen it, definitely check out um, Amazon Prime. I, th- I think it's more so on Amazon Prime ES on Twitter for, for the Spanish Amazon Prime that they're publishing it a lot more. Um, but Marquez has got a, tra- a, a documentary coming out. I don't know if it's a documentary. Is it a series? I think it's, I think it's a series. Yeah, I think it's a series of different episodes about Mark's comeback and his injury, um, you know, links to retirement and various other things. So, Elisa, well, initial thoughts, should I say, what what do you reckon? I think it's an exciting one. I think when the news came out after, you know, the whole debacle with the unlimited series and then what there was news that you know they are doing another documentary and mark marquez and you know have proofs like well why but i think i think obviously their plan was to get the documentary to be like this kind of redemption story you know back to the winning ways and that's not what they got you know we have all seen last season and i think i think that's a good one because mark hasn't traditionally been the writer who's shown more of his human side obviously mm. he showed parts of it but i think this one is going to be much more on that side and and i think it's it's not good to actually see what's happening or what is going through and i think you know even if you're not invested in the current situation i think they mentioned that it's going to talk about some of the past things so like relationships with rossi and relationship with petros and stuff, stuff like that so that should be a something everybody would would probably enjoy yeah i think there's going to be some new elements to it that we've not actually seen or heard about before like you say with Rossi and Pedroza and sort of these dark clouds that we seem to think we know everything about but then there might be the odd sprinkle of information that we've not heard about before I mean at the very beginning of the trailer Mark literally does say to the director or whoever it is like you followed me around everywhere so you will you will know basically everything um and with all due respect to Mark I, you know, he's not put out a hell of a lot through this injury, apart from the regular sort of what you'd expect of, you know, I'm on I'm on my way back, I'm, I'm working hard, you know, like, because you don't want to show that weak side a lot of the time as a sports person, like, you, you don't want to show that, that vulnerable side to you. Um, but I think people know, because of the amount of operations he's had, and because of the, like, longevity of the time off, I think people are not stupid to know that he's in a tough place and you'd be, you know, you wouldn't be a human if you weren't. So I think it is the right time to bring a documentary out like this because it it's not revealing a side of Mark that nobody would expect with what he's gone through, but it is nice to see that side to him, to see 
the human Mark Marquez, not just Mark Marquez. Because I remember in 2013 when he won his um, MotoGP title for the first time and there was a documentary that came out about that year and it was all grey and everything was rosy and, you know, fantastic, incredible year. And there was certain just pockets in that um, documentary about him and his granddad and like how he gets up every morning to watch the races and whatnot, wherever in the world. And it was like, that was probably the first time I'd seen the human Mark Marquez of like, you know, he loves his family life. He loves his hometown. He has a great relationship with the people there. And since then, really, like you see it still, obviously when he goes back there and celebrates titles and wins and et cetera. But I think what's clear in the trailer of this one is that that's quite heavy because of the link of him moving away from Severa and um, relocating in Madrid, I believe. So there's a big link there with like family life and home life for him, his relationship with Alex, his brother, his parents, and obviously his parents advising him to either retire or carry on. So there's a lot more personal side, I think, of this, this documentary or series, should I say, that I'm looking forward to just to sort of, again kind of reassess what I really think about Marquez, which obviously I think he's great. I think he's a phenomenal rider and what seems like an absolutely great guy. But um, you don't really, you know, we, we can all say this about Fabio and Mark and whoever, but um, we're never going to know them personally unless <laughs> unless stars align. <laughs> but this is great for that, I think. I think it's, it's good for the fans to see this side of people, which is why we loved MotoGP Unlimited. And sadly, it's not carried on, but... This is something for us to dig our teeth into before the um, first race of the season in Portimao. And I, I, the thing I'm looking forward to the most about this is, you know, for, so he had his injury in 2000 in 2020, um, and there was this whole thing about him trying to come back. I I want to see first of all how long this goes because I doubt it's going to be from 2020 up until recently it's probably going to be the 2021 season maybe when he's tried coming back and then realized you know it, I, i'm interested to see like how much of this they cover and I, th- I think they might cover up until the last operation because there was spec when he had his what was meant to be last operation there was straight away like he could need another one so maybe i don't know i mean yeah you make a good point think- though I think they filmed for the 2022 season. So last season, they filmed like all of the year because it has stuff. It has like scenes from the time they were watching the football. Like they, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the football. Well, they had oh. scenes with for for Formula One fans. You can watch for Carlos Sainz there with Mark Marquez, which mm. actually apparently they are neighbors or something in Madrid. Yeah, they live quite so, close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so like if if anybody for some reason is listening to this podcast and not actually interested in MotoGP, you can also watch it for Carlos Sainz. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think Elisa's right. I think um, having seen those bits of him and Carlos, which I remember seeing on Carlos and Mark's socials um, with Mark and wearing like the Japan shirt, which I, I, I remember weirdly for during the World Cup. So they must have, they must have filmed it up until very recently. Um, yeah. So you probably are going to see the complete start to finish of the injury. I say start to finish. I know it's still obviously ongoing, but from start to current day, pretty much. Well, and there's an article on motorsport.com about this, and there's a part in here that says, um, 
that it'll show the risks of undergoing surgery and that the arm does not recover the suffering of not being able to be who he was on a motorcycle, the support of his family and friends, above all the ability to overcome adversity and the excitement of feeling like a rider again and stepping on the podium. Um, I mean, having said that, it's, it also it's, says uh, the film documents his triumphant return, eventually scoring his hundredth podium at the Australian Grand Prix. So mm-hmm. it, it almost seems like this was this is going to be from the time they realized the arm didn't heal from the first surgery, and going what, where do you go like Minnesota or something? Yeah, I think the they'll still document surgery. it from before, but like in terms of the real in depth behind the scenes stuff, probably yeah, from around that sort of time. But for anyone that, even if you're listening to this now, go on Twitter and get up GQ or GQ Spain or whatever. Uh, or just search in, yeah, search in Mark Marquez on Twitter and you will see the scars on his right arm for anyone that hasn't seen them before. That in itself speaks thousands of words of what you can imagine he's gone through. Um, so to see kind of behind that, do you know what I mean? And to see... Mm-hmm what's what's really going on behind the scenes for that i I love i mean i think that's why drive to survive really did work because behind the scenes is it's not so much being nosy and being like oh let's find out stuff that we don't know about it's more just seeing what we don't get like not forced to see but you know i mean like the 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 clean sort of nice side of tv it's nice to see human casual reaction not like yeah, we had a great race. I'm really looking forward to the next race. Should be great. Thank you for the team. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, that's great. But I want to see. I want to see how Mark really feels. I want to see how Mark and his family react to finishing fourth and it being feeling like a win and stuff like that. Like that to me is more interesting than seeing, you know, a standard post race interview and sort of post race cool down rooms where they're like forcing them to speak English and forcing them to not swear and all the rest of it. I, I, I like to see the human side of it. For me, anyway, I, I quite like that. Mm-hmm. It's the same yeah. as we talk with Alesh, you know, being yeah. with his kids and stuff like that. It's the same stuff. And I think uh, I read the article, you know, promoting the movie and stuff like that. And it was uh, the title was something like that, that when I won, I cried because of the pain, not because of the winning. And I think yeah. that's one of the things, you know, I know people and having also, you know, been in pain and some symptoms of chronic pain and how much of a hell that can be. And it's it's mm. something that even if Mark would have would never race another race again, I'm happy if he's not in pain like every 100%. day for the rest of his life. And I think that's 100%. also something like. Yeah, no, I, I said the exact same thing on the podcast multiple times in that. Um, and I, part of me can understand if people do think that this is because I come from a Rossi background that I'm saying this, but I, I am in no way, shape or form thinking that, um, that I would every day of the week prefer Mark to retire and be as good as he can be in terms of like, if we knew that he is never going to get any better than where he is at now. And it's a huge risk that if he crashes and then he can't ride a bike, he can't, you know, in 10 years time he's, He's lost mobility in his arm and stuff like I would rather him finish tomorrow, every day of the mm-hmm. week. I, you know, I'd want nothing more than a, a healthy Marquez and somebody that 
can look back on their career and say, you know what, I did well. And no, no matter when he finishes, people are going to say that. But in 20, 30 years time, he can still do the most mundane things. He's not sat there with without half an arm or something. I know it sounds ridiculous and it sounds very far-fetched, but you you know I'm I'm not just picking things out of thin air but you've only got to look at somebody like Wayne Rainey who went from top of the world top of the world like best rider on the grid up with Schwantz best rider on the grid and within 24 hours that was it his world had been flipped and for the rest of his life he's paralyzed from the waist down mm. again it's racing that 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 can happen but and I know paralysis is a little bit different, but with Mark, he, he said in the trailer, you know, he, he can't keep doing what he, he does. He can't keep crashing like he does. He can't keep risking it like he does. And I think Indonesia 2022 was an even bigger wake-up call than what he expected to have. I think he expected a big crash to go, yeah, that's my limit. But it was that big of a crash. I think it was almost like a, yeah, I really really need to think about this like if he didn't already knowing that they needed another operation around that same sort of time after Magello like you mentioned Matt in Minnesota I think I think that in Indonesia crash really did set him back and think yeah if if I'm going to do this and have another operation it needs to be now not wait until the end of the year and then try and cram it all in one he needed time off 100% he needed time off he needed the he needed the rest of the year um, away from it. It, it, it. For me, there was no doubt. And let's see how he gets on in 2023. But for this documentary to come out, I think every MotoGP fan is going to love it. I really do. I think I think it's great. I really do. Yeah, and for our next topic, I was going to spin the wheel, but then as I was looking at it, I'm like, no, nah, this seems like the logical... So there's also another documentary coming out, uh, this one on the MotoGP Video Pass, um, called There Can Be Only One. Uh, it will highlight the 2022 season. It'll follow Fabio Quattararo, Mark Marquez, Juan Mir, Alicia Spargo, and Pekka Benyaya, uh throughout the 2022 season. It's a four-part series, uh, with the first episode being released on January 27th. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting having this come out and then having the Mark documentary come out, because they're both going to be talking about the same time. And in one, you're going to see, you're, you're going to see the like little parts of his injury. You know, whenever he has to make the decision to have surgery again, and you're, you're probably going to see that crash in Indonesia. And then to have, to go from that. And then a couple weeks later, have the, Mark documentary come out where it's going to be okay. Hey, remember what you saw in There Can Be Only One? Well, let's show you even more of that. Yeah, I do agree. I think that's probably the only good thing about um, the release date in terms of how they match up. Because as we were discussing before the podcast last year, uh, we had MotoGP Unlimited that came out after the season had started, which yeah, I mean, we, we covered that last year. but that <laughs> We don't was, need to discuss that atrocity. Yeah, that, yeah. that was just ridiculously stupid. Um, but yeah, no, it's a good point you make, Matt, to be fair, because I think some people will tune into that and think, yeah, that's that's quite something, or that's quite a statement or a, or a story to look into. 
And then for this Marquez thing to come out, it's like, you see that guy, that crash? Let's let's go and delve into his career. And if you don't know Mark to the extent that, you know, a lot of us do or some people do for the last couple of years, like yourself, Matt, who tuned in in 2020 and it was like, okay, mm-hmm. this guy's injured. Um, cool. And then you come to find out how big of a deal that is for him to be injured and how big of an injury and the after effects and all the rest of it and how it affected Honda. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I do think during that MotoGP documentary um, or series again, you see the frustration of Honda. You can see it in them saying like, we have to make this work because if this is not, if this, if he doesn't get fit in Marquez, we basically have to go clean sheet, a complete different direction. You can see it. You can see it. You can see that in in the results and you can see that in the development of the bike the last two or three years, even when they've had Paul Spargo come in and tweak a few things to start working for him. If Mark wants the bike to go that way, they have always gone that way. That's just fact. And he's won eight titles across his career, six of them in GP. You're going to follow that guy, obviously. But if that guy then can't do it no more and you've gone so far down that direction you can see in Alberto Puig's interviews and sort of like energy that he's like yeah it's a bad injury but we really need it to work mm-hmm. so you have not only do you have like these rider feuds and these sort of like small little digs at one another um, with Anaya and Pekka which I'll allow Elisa to um, speak about you also have these teams that Suzuki have dropped out. Obviously, it got, you know, I think it's like six manufacturers, and it's like, well, one of them's gone. So you, you'll see that, hopefully. You'll see Honda. You'll see Ducati win their first ever, uh, their second title, sorry, but like first in, what, 15 years or whatever it is. And you'll see Yamaha probably have a lot of internal frustration with what they've got going on, as well as KTM. And Aprilia winning their first ever race. Each manufacturer in 2022, had its own story. So I really hope that that gets covered. But um, yeah, Anea and Pekka, we were discussing before we recorded, and Elisa mentioned that's something you and I, and probably everybody listening, shares in something to look forward to, to uh, for 2023. Um, do you want to speak about what you've seen in the trailer for Pekka? Yeah, there was some spicy clips of uh... Pego asking, is, is Bastianini with me or against me? And I think, you know, maybe they would put all the controversial bits on the trailer. But I think I think it's it's something, you know, during the season, I remember thinking that, you know, I'm so sad that they don't do the unlimited series anymore because you don't get any of the behind the scenes drama. You don't get to see right. the party car- garage and stuff like that. So, but if you actually get some scenes, like I, I, as I've understood, these are like, you know, behind the scenes in on the racetrack scene. So I, I would love to be, because even though, you know, we all know they presented a harmonious front, you know, and even now as they release their bike and all the, the interviews have come out and they're like, yeah, yeah, we are going to be friendly, you know, on track they may fight, but we all know it's not like that. And with two competitive riders, it's, it's never been like that. So that's also an interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, I was saying before, it's the exact same energy of, this sort of smile and wave, shake hands and put an arm around one another and post the photos, but everyone in the room knows that they both hate the thought of finishing fifth behind the other guy being fourth. Like, it doesn't matter if it's first, second or ninth and tenth. 
the fact that they're both Italian on an Italian bike for an Italian team, I think if it goes well, I think we've got an absolute storm of a story there with um, Anea and Pekka because Pekka's won a world title. So you're going to think that he favourites them, but Anea's going to come in and think, well, am I here to make up the numbers or do you want me to win races? So, you know, uh, he's not there to make up the numbers. And we've seen that. We've seen that in 2022 with Le Mans causing Pekka to crash. We've seen it in Aragon when he could have said, I'll take the, the five points less and let Pekko have it for the championship. He didn't have it. We've seen it. So that's on a that's on a bike that isn't the factory one. So to be given the license of welcome to the factory team, we are putting our faith in you to bring in results. If they want results, he's got to beat Pekko. And if he wants to keep his seat, ultimately, like Jack Miller, you've got to beat Pekko. Yeah, there's a, there's a line of hungry young Italian guys, you know, exactly. there's a, even starting with Jorge Martin, maybe Ducati, maybe going otherwise, but even the other Azeki. guys, like Marco Besecchi, absolutely. like Marini. Uh, yeah, and, you know, probably got even more guys coming there, and, you know, so that's, yeah. it's, it's a hot save, you know. Yeah, which actually is a good point you make with Jorge Martin, because there's been murmurs and rumours that, because of the way that Bastianini has um, gone and him him getting the ride for Ducati over Jorge Martin, that basically if uh, Morbidelli basically doesn't set the world alight at the beginning of 2023, that Jorge Martin is deemed as the favourite for the second seat at Yamaha for 2024. Um, personally, speaking from a Yamaha point, Yamaha point of view, I'd be very, very happy with that. Um, I've always liked Jorge Martin's riding style and he's so smooth and kind of, rem- I think he's quite similar to Fabio in the sense of how low he gets on like longer corners, especially when he's like basically got his shoulder all the way down to the curb. Um, and I think that riding style works. He, you know, he, he's he's the proven winner and he's got championship experience across all three classes. So I think with that, I'd be more than happy with Jorge Martin. As I am with Morbidelli, I'm just so annoyed that it's not really worked out the way it should have done. Um, But that is another point to make up because I don't think, I'll be honest with you, I don't think Zarco's got a lot of time left at Pramac. Um, Speaking on opinion here, not fact, but I do think that if Jorge, uh, not Jorge Martin, sorry, if if Loren, I can't even think now, Zarco, (laughs) get the right name, if, or Lorenzo but, come back to the <laughs> yeah. win finally. If, <laughs> if Zarco um doesn't win or at least at least asserts himself as top five regular, I I do sadly think that his days at Pramac might be over. And I could be wrong with that, but like Elisa just said, I think there's so many hungry young Italians. And just young riders coming through that I just don't see. Why would you prioritize a then 33-year-old next year over a Bezeki to move Bezeki up to Pramac and then have whoever, you know, up in in the uh, VR46 or Grassini or, you know, you never know. But well, and I just think that it's, there's no point, really. If, if he's not doing what he's meant to be doing, which is getting himself near the podium, which we've seen. He's had his chances and he has thrown them away time and time again. I I really want to see him win. He's he's one of those riders that 
I think he's the most, he's the best rider to never win in modern GP. And I want to see that backflip. But I just don't think he's going to do it. I don't. Well, and then you you think about, because you said about Zeki possibly moving up. You you have to think, what is uh, Alex Marquez going to do on a Ducati? Well, I, I think if, if Bezeki moves over to Pramac, I think Morbidelli will go to VR46. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like, I, I can see, like, if Jorge Martin leads for Yamaha and Franco is booted out and, you know, Zargo is then out, I could see, like, the whole VR46 just them moving up to Pramac yeah, both. And then, you know, VR46 getting, like, Celestino Vietti and then yeah. Franco Morbidelli back because they don't really have any other guys. I mean... Yeah, I could see a 2024 line. It's so stupid to be talking about 2024, but I could see 2023 hasn't even started yet. Nor <laughs> yeah, we do it every year. We do it every year. But I do think 2024 um, will be Vietti and Morbidelli on VL46, and I think Pramac will be Marini and Azeki. Heard it here from me and Elisa. So if it happens, then <laughs> you can cash us your uh, bet winnings from that. Absolutely. I will say the one thing that kind of surprised me about this, there can be only one series. And when we were talking about this before we were start recording, Elisa even said the same thing. Like they picked Juan Mir to follow. And I, it's probably for the whole point of Suzuki leaving. Like, what is that team going through? But like, while we've been talking, I noticed this. They picked a rider from every manufacturer except for KTM. KTM is not going to be featured in this at all, which just seems kind of, if you're going for five, like you've picked five riders, th- throw in a, a fourth and you get every manufacturer. You, I mean, you know, follow yeah. Miguel. Follow Miguel through the whole, you know, KTM wanting to keep him, him wanting to leave, and, you know, he, he got two race wins. You know, you, you it would have, have been the... quite good to think with Miguel because you would have seen the sort of, yeah, they're getting rid of me. And I've won two races. So almost like a, you know, to KTM, like it would have been quite good to see that because you know how much I rant and rave about Miguel. So I would have been mm-hmm. more than happy to see Miguel like kind of flip the bird at KTM through a through a, a series. Not, not, you know, to be like nasty or anything but just to see that sort of side of it i think would generate good numbers i think it's always good when you see almost a unfavored rider or driver in we've seen it drive to survive with um sergio perez get sort of pushed out and pushed out and then he goes to a team and then wins and it's like all wins already being sacked in uh bahrain wasn't it in sakias and it's sort of it kind of the team are all like great why did we get rid of him then? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's sort of that massive kind of, you know, embarrassment almost for, for KTM. And I, I couldn't be happier to see them embarrassed because I think it's stupid that you got rid of Miguel. So, yeah, you're probably right, really. They should have probably done a um, a part with Miguel. I think that would have been good. It's The whole series is going to be just misery town with like Honda and Suzuki and, and even Aprilia by the end and even... And in Yamaha, obviously, with Fabio being the only one, <laughs> it's going to be just Ducati celebrating and fighting internally, much, and yeah. everybody else crying in the background. Pretty much, yeah. It, I mean, it just seemed weird. Like as I'm looking at the image for like the uh, 
image for the series. And it's just like you you've got five. You could just get the sixth, uh, you know, one. And I'm sure that you know these documentary executive or series executive producers that you know can manufacture drama out of nothing. I'm sure they could e- they could even pick Brad Bender, who is just Mister KTM and is you know seems loyal to the end and. I'm sure they could find a way to make drama. Maybe they'd make drama between him and Miguel or something like that. Or, I mean, there's two sides to every story. It could be it could be KTM saying no, we don't want to we don't want to be part of that. But I, if it is Dorna, if probably is Dorna, <laughs> um, yeah, they like. I don't think there's another company that like create a problem or sort of something to be like, why have you done that? And make you question things that you didn't even think you would have to question. You see MotoGP series behind the scenes and you're like, great, we're going to see all the teams. And they're like, oh, by the way, uh, we're not, we're not putting one of the teams in. Why, why are you doing that? I don't know. It's like, why, 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 why have you done like, that? Print prizes. Nobody asked for them. Nobody was, was even talking yeah. about that. And then just, just that they go, so guys, how many do you want? Do you want any? No. All right. But if we do put any in, how many do you want to see? Only only a few. Don't put any in. We don't want to see it. All right. We've got them in for every single race. It's like, why? Why are you doing Fundamentally changing the championship with the sprint races. But, yeah. you know. Like, they just, do you know what I mean? That's a, another prime example in that it's just something you never thought you'd have to question. Then just comes out of nowhere and is like, great. Work that one out. Like, why? Why would you not put KTM in it? Again, if it's KTM, I retract majority of things I'm saying right now in the sense of, like, Dorna not putting them in for no particular reason. But if it is KTM, then why would you not? And I think, you know, it's if it, because it's a Dorna documentary, I think they must own some rights to film. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, like, I don't think... I mean, if it's drama they want, they could have just... Filmed like Remy and Raul and the whole saga with both of them hating KTM. And I mean, even though it's a season about the winning, I think it could have still been interesting to follow the rookie or something like that. But there's got to be a reason that they specifically have said we are there is not KTM in it. If 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 through the whole of it, like with Netflix, I know Netflix is not the same because they don't own any rights within um, F1 and Liberty Media, but like with Max Verstappen originally being like, no, because that's a third party coming in and he's going like, no, I'm not being part of it. That's different. That's different. But Dorna, it has to be, there has to be a reason if there is none of KTM being shown throughout it. There has yeah, to be. It, it could be, I mean, did we know how many episodes there are for? Maybe it's just time limits if they want to cover like, you know, Ducati with Peko and all of that. Maybe it's just time limits, you know, and because KTMs weren't as relevant to the championship. But then again, I don't think Suzuki was for Mark even, you know. Well, then, then it feels a bit weird to sort of do a MotoGP as a full collective series and then not include a couple of teams. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you're doing a MotoGP review, like the um, DVDs I was showing Matt a few uh, days ago, like you know throughout the year they will say like this team have signed this person this team have you know introduced this part of the bike or this you know they'll touch on everybody as a review 
which is essentially what this is in terms of showing behind the scenes and it being like, this is basically what happened behind the scenes this year, to then just not include a whole manufacturer with four bikes on the grid. I don't know, it seems a bit weird, but we'll see. We'll see what yeah. ends up getting put out with um, with that. Um, I don't know if you want to spin the wheel, Matt, for the next thing. How many have you got left? Yeah. Two? Uh, there's three. Three more. Okay. Three. I'm trying to think what other three things there are now. Oh, wait, I can think of two. Okay. He added something. He, he must have added something. Like I did, because I remembered this news story that popped up, uh, and it it's what came up on the wheel. Sprint race bonuses. So oh. in recent weeks, Carlos Pernat, who is the, and I'm, I probably butchered that because he's Spanish, uh, he is the manager for Anaya Bastianini, and he is has the Italian. Yeah, oh, is he Italian? Okay. Yeah. Uh, he has threatened that there will be no sprint races if there are not bonuses, uh, stating that riders already have set contracts from their manufacturers that do not include sprint races, and that it is Dorner's responsibility to pay for these bonuses. Dorner is saying, well, that's your team's issue. They need to pay you your bonuses. That's a very interesting point. So you have, and uh, apparently there, because this was a story I first heard about on uh, the Greg's Grodd podcast. And so basically you've got these managers that are going to Dorna and being like, you made these sprint races. You need to pay my rider bonuses for these races. Dorna's going, well, they have a contract through their manufacturer, not through Dorna. Talk to your manufacturer. And the manufacturers are going, this was Dorna's idea, not ours. Talk to them. So apparently they are contracted to do the first three races. After the first three sprint races, they are not contracted to do any more. There's a quote here. Um from Panat, where he says, after the first three races, the riders will go wild. For now, there is still no bonuses per race in the contracts, and if they don't give it to us, I don't think there will be races. We have already well, I mean... agreed to this with Alberto Valera, manager for, of riders like Aleish and Jorge, and Giovanni Balestra, who is uh, Vinales' manager. It's half the points. We want half the bonuses. With the sponsors, we've already included the sprint race bonuses in the contracts. It's a fight between Dorna, the teams, and the riders. I asked Ducati for money. They told me to go to Dorna. At Dorna, they say it's an issue for the teams. The riders will do the first races because they are obligated to. If they don't pay the bonuses, there will be problems. It's an imposition they can't make. I mean, I don't know about you, Elisa or Matt, but I think he's absolutely bang on. Mm -hmm. I think if it's half the races, they deserve half the bonuses. And if they're risking their life half as much in that sense um, and doing half the half the amount, then, yeah, I don't see why. How can anyone turn around and say, well, no, you're not getting a bonus because, you know, like it's, it's not a full race. It's like, well, right. if it's not a full race, then let's not do the race. Simple yeah, as that's that's one of the unforeseen consequences of Dora just dropping this on without even talking with the manufacturers or something like that, because absolutely, absolutely they should get paid for the races. I think mm -hmm. 
you know, we, we've seen with other series and, you know, it, it would be like once the season gets going, I think in reality, seeing them boycott a race would be really difficult. Like even when you think about back to what year was it, Formula One, when they only six people, Indianapolis 2006, when only six drivers raced the yeah, shambolic race. Yes. But even then, you know, it, it was really hard to convince the drivers that were actually, you know, leading a pole position, you know, that they should not race. And I think once the championships get started, you know, the reality of getting, and even that, that's, that's not everyone. I think some people are just still going to race. Obviously, they are going to demand their bonuses, and I think they should get paid. But it's still a hard thing to pull off with the leverage that they have. Yeah, especially considering riders and teams were like, we don't really favour sprint races. The fans didn't favour uh, sprint races. And now Dorna have the cheek to say, oh, well, that's that's going to have to be teams. It's like, well, no, like they're obliged to do three contractually. Mm-hmm. So if contractually they are obliged to do three, they're doing three. Don't let them do any more than three until they get the bonuses. End of. No, I, don't I don't see what the dispute is. It should, like... <laughs> I don't I don't understand how you can go against everyone's vote and then have the audacity to say, well, that's not our problem. Like, well, it is because you've dumped it on everybody and nobody wanted it. Well, and those three will be Portimao, Argentina and the US. And so the first race where they're not obligated to will be Jerez. So mm. it, you figure first race back in Europe. Yeah. And, yeah, unless they can figure this out, you could see a bunch of riders being like, no, I'm not doing this because we're not getting paid to do it. I, and I, it's this power vacuum that I don't see, somebody's eventually going to have to break. And well, it's one of I, them, isn't it? If, if Bastianini, who's Panat's rider, says, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not doing it, and then if Vignales says, I'm not doing it, and then just a few more just start rolling, the more people that are just going to say, yeah, well, I'm not doing it then. No chance. We're going to get Augusto Fernandez winning a race because nobody else <laughs> yeah. has takes part in it. Yeah. Darren said he's like, already... why? Why did I not wait another year? <laughs> I mean, he says he's already got agreements from uh, Leish and Jorge's manager as well as Vinales's manager. And they'll all agree. They'll all, so right like, there, all the manager from a manager's point of view, you will agree with what he's saying. And yeah. <laughs> frankly, I'm not a manager of any rider, and I, I agree. I completely agree. Why? Why? Why would anybody say it's like saying your contract? Say 2020, and you contracted till November the I don't know first, and then the race, the last race of the year, and you go just just do it for free. It's fine. Just do it for free. It's like no, I'm not going to do it for free. Like why would you do it for free? Right. These are professional at the top of the sport riders. Why would they not? What? Again, again, a, a prime Dorna negotiation to be like, why are? Why is that a problem? Like, yeah, you, why is that our problem? Yeah, why? Like, I don't know. I hate to sound like I'm just rambling on there, but I just really don't understand. I just don't. I don't understand how it's all. There's always a conflict. With whoever it is and Dorna. It's never right. anybody in between going, we agree with what Dorna's saying, but it's between 
X team and X team, it's always somebody else and donor, somebody else and donor, mm-hmm. somebody else and donor, whether it's Marshall's, whether it's Ryder's health, whether it's literally anything, anything, TV, whether it's sprint races, it's donor at stewards. It's anything, anything comes from that way down. And that's not me just trying to badmouth them. I would back them up and show a, a, a you know a neutral point of view if there was a, a reoccurrence in favoring what Dorna are doing and it's showing a side to them that makes sense and it's and it's better for it. But for the last few years, they are digging deeper and deeper in just random conflict and random incidents that are only worsening what they've already made into what was and still can be a great sport. Like, it's little things like this that particular riders and managers are just going to get sick of it and just just move right. You know, like, for example, like Remy Gardner, nothing to do with Dorna, but with his situation, there'll be a lot of things, I bet, with his current situation now in World Superbikes that he's thinking, well, you know what, I'm not having to do A, B, and C, and this, that, and the other, and... Granted, you want to be in MotoGP, but I'll tell you what, I've watched World Superbikes last year and just incidents like red flags, they'd be so much quicker on it, even though it's a Dorna thing. But then you move over to MotoGP and look at Philip Island, you've got Jorge Navarro, broken leg or whatever it was on the side of the track. And it's like, that's fine, just keep riding. Like anyone that tells me that's not Dorna's problem and it's like, that's a Philip Island Marshall problem you are talking out of your backside. Like that, mm-hmm. to me, I still can't get my head around. So, again, I might have gone on a tangent, but I, for me, I I think it's becoming more and more annoying to hear riders get frustrated with that because fans were frustrated with it last year with sprint races. The, the survey they put out, I thought, that's great. That's a great side to Don. I even said on the podcast that it was a great idea to get everyone's views from... Europe, Asia, Americas, like Africa, wherever you're from, to get a, a diverse feedback from all corners of the world of people that support races in particular areas, or where do you want to see MotoGP go? Like, what what tracks? There was even questions like that, like what tracks that are not on the calendar now would you like to see? And since mm-hmm. then, we've gone to Kazakhstan that wasn't on the list. We're going to Saudi Arabia, which has got its issues separate to that anyway and every other track on that list has not even been mentioned since that survey came out sprint races the majority of people voted against it we've got them what's the point in the survey what's the point in the survey do you know what i mean yeah i don't think we're going to saudi arabia are we going we're going to india india India. that wasn't on the list yeah. yeah i know you could add like you know, a, a separate thing. You are not telling me, you are not telling me that the other put your own t- circuit in was the most favor- favorable vote over Bruno, Estoril, Laguna Seca, like historically great tracks that have that have previously in recent years been to in MotoGP, modern GP fans can reference to. You're not telling me Saudi Arabia Kazakhstan, with all due respect India. to those countries, was at the top of the list 
of of places to go. India, I get because that's a part of Asia that we've we've not been to. That mm-hmm. I'm like, that's great. There's a great market for it there, and why not? Why not? Kazakhstan, middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere, barely any market for it, and it's just a, a load of money being thrown at a pancake track. Pancake, pancake, flat as anything. Saudi Arabia. I mean, you'd need a podcast in itself to go over that with women's rights, human rights, and all the rest of it, which exists in Qatar that we still race at now, that never gets talked about, but it needs talking about. But Donna just, no, it's fine. We'll ignore that. Kilami, we have a South African GP winner and previous world champion on the grid as a factory rider, and Kilami has not even... It's not even touched Dorna's website. Not even touched it, apart from that one day, like media coverage they did with Brad Binder down there, like at the beginning of last year. Kiel Army. We've not been to South Africa since mid two thousands with Biaggi and Rossi uh, for Rossi's birth of Yamaha. A market there now. There's an African rider racing in GP. Why am I not going there? Kimi Ring. That since I know Elisa's obviously going to be like, like want to go to Kimi Ring, but like. Why? Why are we not going I there? I don't think Kimi Ring is a loss. To be fair, like, like I understand that. I think, from what I understood, I mean, the track was bad, and I think the main motivation was to get Russians to come because it's close yeah. to the Russian border. So that's yeah. basically also the reason why it was canceled. That I get. That yeah. I get. But in terms of like the push for it, sent even when it was like a prospect, it sent very like. Yeah, it's yeah, it's coming like whatever. Kazakhstan has come out of fucking nowhere and it's like right. Kazakhstan's on the calendar, India's on the calendar, Saudi Arabia's coming. It's like, where's Brazil? Where's South Africa? Where mm-hmm. where are these tracks that there's the corners of the world we're not going to that have huge markets? Huge markets. Why are they not going there and going where fans voted for? That's why we had a survey. I'm not saying you've got to do everything the fans want, but why would you put a survey out if, I mean, I don't know about either of you you guys, but I don't remember putting anything on that survey that I now see over a year on that I go, oh, I voted for that. I don't see any right. of it. Oh, and you look at, like, the tracks, so they added Kazakhstan and um, India, which, like, there were so many other places. You, like, you could add a second U.S. race and try to build up the market. What, F1's doing three U.S. races next year? They're doing Vegas, Coda, and Miami. Mm. But, you know, instead you're going to Kazakhstan. You know. I mean, Indonesia was great because Indonesia's population in terms of like how mm-hmm. how heavy bikes are over there and you know right. in terms of the popularity of them great it's a it's a market i can completely get behind just like and i'm India. not saying always go to the places that favor it but obviously from a business standpoint it has to weigh up apart from saudi arabia going yeah we'll pay it whatever it is we'll pay it like there has to be a market there has to be a reason and sort of an understanding as to why we're going there and what will help Ultimately, what should come first, the racing and the fans. Kazakhstan, I will I will die on this hill that Kazakhstan will not end up doing what Assen do 
because it's a good market and because it's a good racing and it's a historical track and it's a track that still to this day, even if it is historical, has got good attributes, keep extending mm-hmm. their grandstands and continue to fill the grandstands, Kazakhstan will, like Qatar, never be full, never extend, and will just sit on the calendar for as long as they're willing to pay it, thinking that, yeah, the money keeps rolling in, and then it'll get shifted on in however many years, and nobody will come away from it going, I'm good that Kazakhstan's not staying on the calendar. I I will die on that hill. I'll say it now. And people could say, don't judge it until we've tried it. But come on. Come on. Like, look at the track. Look at, like, when, when Kazakhstan got announced, you cannot tell me either of you were like, oh, yeah, Kazakhstan's on the calendar. I, I think it, I, I think my reaction was there's a track in Kazakhstan. Yeah, like, Kialami is literally a grade A track. Mm-hmm. It is grade A. It is certified for F1 and GP to race on. It's like... For anyone that doesn't understand what I mean by that, you have to have a grade A certificate for particular series to race at those tracks. So if you don't have a grade A certificate, like Cadwell Park in the in the UK doesn't have a grade A uh, certificate because I think it has a grade B for like national series at a certain level, but for prototype open wheel sort of level of racing, it has to pass a certain degree of certificate for it to be raced upon. Brad Binder... And Darabinder, in fairness, but Brad Binder mainly, with the with the franchise of Red Bull behind him. How good, like, you could literally have it sponsored by Red Bull. Red Bull KTM. KTM's main man, Brad Binder, who has won races. Home man, home hero. Do it for a year. Try it. Like we said in the survey, try, try it. Go for a year. Like sprint races. Try it. Don't go... Phew, full on just try it and they haven't they haven't like that to me is the most understandable market that if i'm brad binder i'm like we're having a race in kazakhstan but uh you know for all he's done he's won a world championship in moto three nearly won one in moto two and won in gp multiple times and he and and there's not even a, a whisper of a home race in a market that needs it why why don't we have a race in africa we have all these races in europe we have them in asia we have them in oceania we have them in south america and we have them in north america why don't we have one in africa we have an african rider in gp do you know what i mean like i don't know what your guys thoughts are on just that but if you're going to have an african race at least have one where we have an african rider I, that makes more sense to me than ever like if mika Calio would have made it to stay at MotoGP at like a an Alicia Spargo level of consistent, solidified GP rider and won the odd race or even got on the podium the odd time. I could understand pushing Kimi Ring a lot earlier and trying to pu- get that out there, not just for Mika Calio, but there's a market. Let's strike now whilst we can and then we've got, you know, some some funding for it and we're going to earn something back from it. Kialami's already built. It's already built. The track's there. The track's there. The stands are there. The garages are there. The facilities are there. The transport's there. All you have to do is agree with Kialami, whatever you want finances-wise, to go. <laughs> and and Red Bull, with where they are with KTM, would probably sponsor it, like they do with Circuit of Americas, because who wins there? 
Mark Marquez. Marquez. It's not rocket science, is it? Like, how can that be that hard? Am I am I just am I just ranting for the sake of ranting? Please tell me if I am, because I feel like I have a point, but Elisa's probably thinking, I wish he'd shut up. <laughs> No, no, I think you actually have I, I absolutely have a point on it. I think it's it's so weird that I mean, obviously it has to come down to money, and I think especially after COVID and all that, I think it's understandable that MotoGP is going for tracks that are like tourism based, like they want to promote the country and they are willing to be pay like more than you know any other country. But still, in terms of the sport and the fan base, absolutely agree. And even though you know, I agree with the South Africa and also like I think the India one is actually a good one because there's a big bike market there and I think a lot of people like people underestimate how many people there are in India and you know and I think it will absolutely find a great place there as long as it's affordable for them to go, which was not the case with Indonesia. But yeah, but even that, you know, speaking like I think they made some changes to spa, which in Belgium I think I don't know how much of a market, but that's an amazing track. You know, that would be a great choice, in my opinion. Yeah. So the case with Spa was that the original CEO of Spa was actually moving towards that deal with MotoGP and actually pushing for development of Spa to to be extended in terms of like the barri- barriers and uh, the safety side of it. But sadly, she passed away, um, which has sort of pushed everything back. And you know, that's then over to whoever you know. Um, now runs Spa and runs that side of things to then carry on pushing that. Um, They have gone ahead with that, with like up uh, Radion, um, Pastel Rouge, they have extended it and they have tried endurance bike racing there. So I think it's still, you know, in the works for it, but I agree. I think Spa would be incredible in terms of the history of that track and how good of a track it is. For me, Spa is top five circuits in the world um i think it's an incredible venue great scenery in terms of where it's based in belgium and yeah I, I think it's one of those that would be a great addition to the european market however even though i would prefer spa if you were to tell me that Kialami would go instead of it i'd say fair enough because we have how many races do we have in europe like let's say 10 africa doesn't have one has not had one for over a decade so I'm, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't want to be seemed as too selfish to be like, we need another race in Europe. Um, although it would be great. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's numerous tracks in, in Europe that I could that definitely vouch for. Bruno, as I said earlier, Estoril. I loved Estoril. Estoril was a phenomenal track. I used to love it, especially with the old 125s and 250s. Um, Donington Park, everybody in the UK will always vouch for. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty of tracks that you can sit there and sing from the hilltops, but I think, like you say, India's a great market. Indonesia is, except for the ticket prices in and whatnot, which, again, it's a new track. So I kind of get wanting to pull a little bit more money back from it and saying, you know, where it's based and the the luxury of the hotel and everything in the middle of it and the sort of facility that it is. I, I, I do understand somewhat trying to, you know, up the prices, but you have to then understand the demographic of where you're basing that circuit and you know the prices for the tickets was quite steep for the average sort of weekly wage let's say in indonesia um which didn't really get accounted for but yeah i think in terms of new tracks i'm more than happy for for india to be involved because again it's a sensible market 
Saudi Arabia and Kazakhstan, however, can kindly get in the bin for me. <laughs> kindly. Said in so, as aggressive way possible. Before we move on to the next subject, I, I real quick, like, I had no idea where this, tr- what this track in India was. It's the Buddha International Circuit. Bud. Bud, Not the Buddha. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Yeah, there's a difference. I think it's, it's just better we don't confuse religion with it. Yeah. A bit like, it's F1. So it is an F1 grade one track. That license expires at the end of this year, November 18th. So yeah. for all we know, this will be the only time. Of course, it's a fucking Herman Tilka track. Well, you say that, but that's that's pure and simply because, you know, it, you don't just get a grade one certificate or grade A certificate. And then it's like, right, you will forever be a grade right. one because obviously it has to be regulated on a on a sort of periodic basis. Um, what what track would you like to see if you were to if you had one pick to bring one back? What would you what would you bring back, Elisa? Oh, I mean, it's a good. I think it's a good option, but also blaring a Sega, you know. But I, I understand it, but it has some problems with the not having Moto Two and Moto Three. But I think mm. that's also a great track. And I, I'm, I'm a bit heartbroken about Aragon. Not just because it's great track for Mark, but just because I think it's better one of the Spanish tracks. Like Aragon. Aragon, yes. I'm, like, like I think, I think it has good racing, better racing than Valencia. I think. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah that's. Yeah. The- Valencia, I'd get rid of, but Aragon, because I'm Yamaha, I'm like, I don't <laughs> mind it going off the calendar if it does. Um, <laughs> But no, no, it, it does. It does have some good racing. I will. I will agree with you on that. But Valencia, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Thailand, get rid of Thailand. Never bring Thailand to the calendar. Get rid of it. <laughs> get rid of it. Matt, what would you bring back if you could bring if you could bring a track back? Or, I mean, if anyone's listened to Eddie O'Shea's uh, podcast, you'd definitely bring that that track into the uh, into the front. Um, if I, I mean. Adding one back, I'm not sure I'm not that, you know, in depth with, you know, previous tracks. I think if I would like to see them go to a track. So I have have two. One is just a complete fever dream. The other one is more of a logical. And I've I've said Daytona before. They do the the Daytona 200. I, I think it'd be cool just to see bikes, but that's... My fever dream, I would love to see motorcycles Sorry. at Bathurst. Yeah, no, ba- I love Bathurst. I would Bathurst lo- I, it, it will never happen. It would be the no. most dangerous thing imaginable. You would see bikes airborne coming down the mountain. But yeah, I, no. what, I think that... I love that track. You'd have Ducatis flying down the straightaways, but then once you get up into the mountains more like yamahas would take over and be able to get through the mountain section better sector one like, and four would be ducati and sector two and three would be mark and fabio like just like yeah and it, but it would be a ma- bit like i said with and it, there's that one part that i can think of where you go under the banner and you start like down the mountainside you would have bikes flying through the air there's especially there's this quick like right hander drop into a left you would see bikes flying off into the wall there. Yeah, I've probably time. done. I think I've done. Um, and if any of my 
mates that play Gran Turismo with me can vouch for me on this. They would, and I've probably done around, I'd say it two, three thousand laps of Bathurst um, on virtual racing. I love that track so much. So mm-hmm. if that was ever to be a bike track, I would absolutely love it to be on the uh, calendar. But obviously, it never would. Um, you know what? We should bring up Isle of Man, you know, bring back the OGs, you know, oh. just, just go to Isle of Man. You're, you're talking about dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, I remember when Mark Marquez, I think he went over to the Isle of Man or something and he was just like, you would never see me close to trying this. <laughs> never. He was like, no chance. He was like, he even said he didn't like it, which is understandable with the amount of deaths and everything that have happened at Isle of Man over the years. And I spoke about that on Twitter last year, but yeah, Isle of Man is, wow. That is different breed of, uh, of heart and sometimes lack of brains, but yeah, it's, it's incredible. That is, that is a spectacle in itself, but Bathurst, Isle of Man. um, Yeah, they they would be, I I don't think they would be the same amount of riders finishing the season as they would start in it. Um, The track I would like to see uh, MotoGP go to would be uh, Road America in the U.S. Yeah, that's not bad. They do motorcycle racing there, um, and there's this whole, like, you come around the one loop towards the end, there's a kink that they can add in there that they do for motorcycle racing. So that way you're not not coming around that back corner and then just carrying all the speed down that back straightaway there's a little kink in there to help break the speed i just but the paddocks are not big enough uh which is surprising because that track is enormous um Mm. yeah the paddocks aren't big enough i mean they go they do like indy cargos there they do gt racing there um i think the imsa goes there but it's a smaller race so I think that would be an interesting one to go to, but I don't think it would. They would have to do massive upgrades to the paddock to hold all of the bikes that would go there. I'd actually quite like to see um, Imola. Imola would be mm-hmm. uh, a nice track to go and do, or Magnicore. Uh, probably more Imola than Magnicore, I think, in terms of which one I'd favour. But Imola is one of those that they used to go to, but obviously, well, Superbikes go there now, and you know with. Senna and everything else. I mean, they went there past Senna's uh, death. However, I do think that Imola is a is a good little bike track. To be fair, with how thin it is, it's not too wide, uh, but not too thin. I do think there'd be a few um, safety precautions they'd have to sort out for MotoGP to go there with the lack of runoff in certain corners. But um, yeah, great track nonetheless. I think that would be be one to think about. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any others that are like standout tracks. I mean, you're on about dangerous. Imagine if they did the Nordschleife. Oh, dear God. Oh, my. Nordschleife, <laughs> Isle of Man, and Bathurst. I think we've just, I think we've created the death calendar. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's basically who can survive. If, you know that idea of the roller coaster that kills you like as you go on it that, that's, <laughs> that's the, these tracks you know it sounds yeah. good. Nordschleife. i mean no, I'd, I'd love to see him go to nurburgring just just the gp circuit that i love that track i think it's a great track that right. would be good yeah add uh le mans in there but the big le mans oh le not, not not the bugatti circuit that they do now go to the it's... big one yeah 
God, can you imagine Ducati? They'd win by about four laps. Just like no chicanes down the back straight, just a mile of just like... They'd blow the engines up because they'd just be holding it in six gear off the rev limiter for most of that straightaway. I would... I mean, imagine telling that Fabio, like, home race, but we're going <laughs> to change it and we're going to do Lasarth. He'd be like... You, I quit. You, you're kidding, right? He'd be like, you're joking. He would break like... 400 yards deeper than anybody and be like anything <laughs> i need anything at this point like you have like double discs yeah no that would be that would be pain for me instantly as soon as you say that i'm like straight line speed no 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 don't do that <laughs> don't do that oh and another track just before we move on from this i've always said i'd love to see the track back on um, the calendar if it was safe enough suzuka I yeah. love Suzuka. Suzuka's got a special place in my heart. I I will never not like that track. Um, yeah, such such a good track. I think that's one of them. I think it's one of those sort of um, staples in world circuits that you go like certain parts of the world, like Europe, you have your spas. Um, America, you typically have like Laguna Seca that's got so much history with Indianapolis and whatnot. You have you know, Phillip Island and Bathurst in Oceania. For me, in East Asia or Japan, Suzuka's number one. Number one by a mile. I, I, if you had the choice of Mategi and Suzuka and you picked Mategi, then wow. Like, <laughs> Suzuka is just... It just has so much more to it. It has, it has the flowing first section. It has mm. the bridge. It has the spoon curve. It's got chicanes. It's got everything. It's got absolutely everything Suzuka has. I mean, 180R. Can you imagine seeing Mark Marquez go through 180R, which is the, if for anyone that doesn't know, around the back end of Suzuka, when you do the spoon curve, you go slightly downhill, slightly up, and then you have that flat-out, basically, left-hander that Charles Leclerc, mm -hmm. in practice, did it one-handed or something a couple of years ago. Um, imagine Mark Marquez through there, just completely hanging off with probably like his opposite ear touching the tarmac. Like <laughs> it would just be, yeah, that that I would love. I would love to see Marquez. I, I that is one of those tracks I think I could go to and just watch Marquez just go round on his own, mm -hmm. no competition, or Fabio or some, you know, one of the top guys, or anyone really, but to see that I would yeah, I'd love that. I think Suzuka's a phenomenal track. That would be one I would add. I'm probably gonna just keep I'll probably make a new calendar. Mm -hmm. Just races that don't exist, like Isle of Man to begin with, Nurburgring, then the Nordschleife for the week after. Like, just do them all. Do them all. I going to restart his YouTube channel of of his race calendar. No, it's going over twenty twenty four question mark. Ah, <laughs> uh, so on to our next subject, um, which I already spun the wheel. It is that HRC has hired Ken Kawuchi from uh, formerly of Suzuka. Who replace Suzuki? Yeah, you Suzuki. Me saying Suzuka all the time. Yeah, um, but he is replacing, and I'm probably going to butcher this. Takio Yakayama, Yakayama, yeah, uh, as technical hey, yo, manager Yakanama? for Honda. Okay, maybe and, I don't know. So yeah, Honda has swiped away one of Suzuki's top men to come be the technical director. Um, so he'll be worried. So, I mean, for Juan Mir and Alex Renz, this has got to be just like, yeah, it's good. A, gi a giant like wipe off the brow of like, whoo, there's somebody we, you know, we're familiar with and somebody that can come in that, you know, 
can really do something with the Hondas. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you know, with that, with the seasons that Honda has had, and especially you know, thinking of the technical side, I, I really surprised that you know heads haven't started rolling like previously. And you know they are. I think they are moving Takeo to another role in the company, like a lot with the engineers training them in Japan. So I think that's good that he, you know, he has a job. But obviously he has done a great job with Honda. But you know, considering that they are completely lost technically, like, oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, mm-hmm. yeah, like you think about how, how like you, you, and this is just. You hear everybody talking about the Honda bike, and it's just no positive. So like, I remember like somebody who knows technical stuff, and he just said, you know, they are they aren't actually like good qualities to the bike. Like they do nothing better than anyone else. Like they don't even do it well. So you know, it's I mean obviously uh, this is not gonna affect maybe this season as much, but probably hopefully a better future for them for at least the riders' sake. And to be honest, I'm still surprised that Alberto Pouge is still there. I thought they would, you know, swipe up Olivia Supo, probably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they actually still get on as well as what they probably used to. Um, but with that, I um, I think as long as he's good at copy and pasting, he probably will get on quite well at Honda because they like <laughs> doing that. So if he, I mean, the, I've seen the front fairing of what's suggested of the next year's Honda and let's just say it looks exactly like a Yamaha and I've seen the side fairings <laughs> and it looks exactly like a Ducati with Honda uh, with Yamaha winglets so yeah no I think uh, if he's if he's good at managing copy and paste then yeah control C control V and you're a Honda director that's all I'm saying well and one of the interesting things about Honda picking up uh Kawuchi is usually with these Japanese manufacturers, they tend to hold on to everybody. So even like if you know they they take away the Suzuki Moto G or Suzuki motorcycle racing, um, they would they usually find somewhere else in the factory or somewhere else in the organization for them to work. I mean, if you, you know, look at the article that MotoGP put out about this, um, it's saying that. Uh, uh yeah, uh, yeah. God, I, I I'm gonna keep butchering the same. Yokoyama is going back to Japan to be uh to train engineers to be ready f- to go to Europe. Um, yeah, it says he will uh in charge of training the young engin- engineers we have in Japan, so that when the time comes, they are ready for Europe. So even like with Honda, they're they didn't fire him. They just were like, hey. We're taking you out of the MotoGP team. We're going to move you back over here. And it's surprising, like, Suzuki didn't, like, take Kawuchi and be like, we're going to move you over to car side and help figure out, like, electric mobility or whatever the hell they're going to do now. It's probably because in that side of things, they're actually doing all right because of the amount of people that they're cooperating with. But in GP, which is from Honda's point of view in terms of their privilege and culture is a massive side, especially considering the amount of tracks that they own and test mm. and run with bikes in endurance and um, and in prototype and everything else sort of racing, whether it be GP or MX or everything else. 
I mean, apart from, I, I mean, you'll probably be able to comment on this as well, Elisa. I don't want to misquote this or get it wrong, but I believe did I forget the pronunciation of his name, uh, Geistje or whatever his name was, the Slovenian. Tim Geiser. Tim Geiser. Yeah. He, yeah. He won the MX. And was I mean, that with they, Honda? Yes, he has been a Honda man, like yeah, like through and through with his yeah. MX so, I mean, career. Yeah, in terms of recent years on bikes, that's probably the biggest success they've really had in terms of championships. Um, yeah, I think in championships, I mean, also in the US side, they have Jet Lawrence, who actually was in the MotoGP race. He was a really big star. Oh, yeah. And he's coming up. He's coming up on MX. And they also have Chase Sexton, who's also a big up and coming star. So they are actually like winning a lot in MX side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of they like have the... success everywhere else than GP. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and with it being such a big revenue stream for them and such a, you know, obviously think about the amount of like fingers they have in other pies with bikes and GP and it being spread across their like global scene to then look at it and then go, so how are they doing? And Mark not being there, mm-hmm. it is sort of a, we need to like reconstruct this from the ground up. They need to, they need to. Mark can win on whatever they've got or like try and win on whatever they've got for the time being, but. They have to now, if, if COVID and 2020 and what they had to deal with without Mark has not taught them anything, it has taught them that without Mark, they need to actually pull their crap together because without him, and when Mark calls it a day, there is no Mark. So yeah. they, they've got to start working in the direction of whether these engineers that are going to come through the roots of Honda are going to be aiming in a different direction or well, you know, all well and good. But even if they go in the same direction they are now, they they need they can't copy forever because eventually, if you're copying, you're always behind in a sense, mm-hmm. and then you have to rely on a Marquez to pull you in front. If you don't have that to pull you in front, then you are never going to be the ones to sort of come in through the gates and be the ones to set the set the mark, which is no pun intended. Um, they they need they need that they need a direction and. Yeah, let's see. Let's see how that plays out. Because if they've invested in Suzuki employers, uh, employees, sorry, that have been made redundant with Suzuki dropping out, then that's great. But how does that clash moving on to a V4? Because it's not exactly like transferring over from a V4 to a V4 and it being all the same. And I know that's not a massive jump in terms of you know from a tech, technical director's point of view. I'm sure he has mass amounts of knowledge. Um, with v4s and inline fours and whatever but you know moving to honda is not exactly like moving to the shop down the road it's it's a big deal and to be a technical director there under puiju's very cutthroat is going to be quite interesting so we'll see we'll see how honda get on with that um it's going to be interesting 2023 for honda big year for them if 2020 and 21 and 22 weren't big this is huge new riders New, you know, new new people in the team, new direction, new bike, which has not had great reviews from Marquez to begin with in the test. Twenty twenty three is a make or break year, I think, for Honda because if they don't improve and sit around the mid, sort of waiting for Mark to kind of do all the donkey work, I think we might see Marquez in twenty four, twenty five look somewhere else, possibly if he's still racing. I don't know about you, Elisa or Mark, uh, Matt, but. I don't think Mark's going to sit and rely on Honda to, you know, do all his work for him or not do his work for him, but, you know, do what they did before and provide him with what he needed. 
he's not seen it for the last couple of years when he's not been there. When he's come back, he's not been happy with what they've provided with him. And he's made it quite clear, and everybody else knows it, from what other Honda riders have done, it's been more Mark than it has Honda. So I think 2023 is a big, 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 big year for results anyway. But yeah, we'll um, we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, so for the uh, last bit of news for today, um, we were debating about whether to get into this today or do it with uh, our liver review, but we figure we'll get to this one today. Uh, Paco Banyai has... Uh, it has been revealed that he's going to use the number one for the 2023 season, uh, along with... Um, Alvaro Batista. Yes, Batista in the World Superbike. Um <clears throat> I, f- I feel like this was kind of a move if you if you thought about it you saw it coming just because this just looks amazing for Ducati to have two world champions in arguably the top two motorcycle racing series in the world have them both both race the number one it was you know I think the only way it would have been better is if like in Moto America, or you know, they had a Ducati win also. Well, imagine if Yamaha did it for 2021, because yeah, you remember Yamaha in 2021 won <laughs> everything, and I was like, "This is yeah. the best year of my life." Like, um, but imagine, imagine if they did that, because like, they won pretty much every championship that they've participated in. If I mean, some of the ones in MX they didn't, but like, you know. Everywhere else, they they won Super Sport, World Superbike, GP, Japanese Championships, which is huge for obviously Japanese manufacturers. Um, I quite like seeing the number one. I do agree with certain people, like Sam Lewis said that um, you know you work that hard; it's the hardest number to get, and it's a, a, almost like a gratitude of what you've achieved. And I agree with him, but I think. Rossi doesn't help with the fact that he sort of went, no, 46, 46, 46, 46. And his brand of 46 became so big and still is so big that I can understand that of not wanting to use the number one and it being, you know, I want not even for brand reasons, but, you know, it's your number. You want your number to be solidified with victory. And 46 has become that, you know, people don't want to use 46 and it'd be, I'm not the best rider on the grid because 46 is synonymous with being so good and 44 in F1 and number five in F1 and, you know, other numbers like that. So I do, I do get both sides of it. I don't know what Elisa thinks in terms of whether you think he should have picked number one or 63. What do you think? Um, you know, I like the number one back. I mean, I, first year I was watching F1, you know, they didn't actually even pick numbers. Like, I had to run the number one. So coming from Ferrari fan, you know, watching Michael Schumacher always win with the number one. And, you know, I mean, branding purposes, Big Duhan always had the number one. I mean, you know, make it your number. You win everything, then it's not a, not a problem. But mm-hmm. I, I like seeing the number back. And to be honest, I think, I don't think the number 63 is even solidified with Peko, as we saw with the Frankly, I'm gonna say it was the leanest celebration I've ever seen with the, <laughs> the counting, with the counting down the numbers. Like I had no one clue. plus forty two <laughs> equals sixty three. Like like, like, like uh, as a stats person, like I, I'm I'm not so big on seeing equations as the celebration method. <laughs> but, you know, you do you. But anyway, I think that also speaks to the fact that it's not really 
Peko's number per se. Like it's not obviously it's not the same as having like nine three or four six or anything else. Mm-hmm. I think you know just do the number one. And I think it's a it's a good marketing exercise for Ducati as well. And obviously to have the number one on both series and absolutely. So yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, I actually remember when Peko came into MotoGP, and I remember I think it was. Um, I think it might be Amy Reynolds that was like, "Are you what number are you going to use in MotoGP?" And I, I remember saying at the time, "It probably will go with 63 because he in Moto3 we ran 21, then he went to Moto2 and Morbidelli was running 21, so he ran 42, and then he went to MotoGP and Alex Rins was running 42, and it was like, well, that's double of 21, so then surely 21 again. And the only reason I could think of anything else was to use um, 84. Then I was like. Yeah, no, he'd probably just go with the sixty-three, and yeah, I don't know. It's quite nice to see number one back on back on a bike, but obviously Marquez didn't didn't go for number one at all. Um, and another thing to add is that I actually can't remember who would have been the last person to retain them. What Mick Doohan, I believe Mick Doohan would have been the last person to retain the number one because Stoner ran it in two thousand and twelve. Obviously retired at the end of twenty twelve, but um, didn't win in twenty twelve. Lorenzo ran it in 2011 and didn't retain it because Stoner won it in 2011. Um, Nicky Hayden ran it in 2007, which Stoner won. And apart from that, I don't believe anybody else has ran the number one. Um, Lorenzo didn't run it in 2016 when he won it in 2015, probably because of a bad omen of winning it in 2010 and it not being um, there. He didn't run it in 2013 either, having won it in 2012. So before that was Kenny Roberts Jr. who ran number one and obviously didn't really retain it because Rossi won it. Alex Crivier didn't retain it because he only won it once. And Mick Doohan won it year after year running number one. So I believe, if my memory is correct, that Mick Doohan retaining it in 1998 would have been the last year that we retained the number one. So do we think, without making any predictions, do we think he'll retain it or do we think he'll lose it? That's the question, I think, which we'll probably get onto when we make our predictions. Um, But that is sort of the question of, oh, damn, someone's gone with the number one. Are they going to be able to retain it? Because it's a big ask, obviously, then sort of come back with your tail in between your legs of like, 63, I'm back. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, we'll we'll do that when we do our predictions. Well, and like, I know the day that uh, the Ducati unveil happened and you know it was announced that Pekka was going to use number one there was a lot of people on social media um saying like was this the right choice you know because everybody has their own opinion you have you know some people that you know whenever they win a championship they're like yes yeah this is what I've always wanted like um Verstappen in F1 you know, he he won the championship and it was it, like it wasn't even a question. I think the first time he got asked, like, "Well, are you going to run it?" Yes, I'm going to run the number one. And it's like that that's something they've always wanted to do. Is if they win, they want to w- use the number one. I think Max himself as well is like he he wants that, doesn't he? He's always wanted right. that to be like I am one. Do you know right. what I mean? But then you look at people like um, Lewis Hamilton or. Um, you know, Rossi, where it's like, well, I, yes, I won. That was last year. This year is different. This year we're back on the same foot. It doesn't matter what I did last year. And I'm not going to, you know, gloat about it. I'm not going to, you know, come in like I'm better than anybody else. And 
Then there's a third option you did, that you got to think about, which is what Juan Mir said, where it's, well, 36 is my brand. I'm not gonna go. I I'm not gonna go away from my brand. I'm just gonna stick with the number 36. Which again, the, originally, like Elisa said in F1, they had to run number one. If you won the championship, mm. you ran number one, and your teammate ran number two, wasn't it? It was based on like the the the. the yeah, it's based on the team's the... championship. And it's yeah. a weird thing because that's how Williams ended up running zero one year. Yes. 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 Um, so, so not like the perfect that, system, but yeah, I mean, the, the, there is somebody I forget his name, which I, I feel so bad for actually because he does really good videos on F1 and the history of it and all the detailed stuff. But if you look up um, F, F1, how the numbers work or something, or numbers explained, it will come up. He's got like a yellowy beige sort of theme on his channel, he's he's really good. Go and watch it. Um, but yeah, historically, it was always you, you just, you just did, you ran the number one. Um, which is why riders like Dewan, Rainey are all synonymous with number one, Agostini, you know, they're, they're, they're just known for it. Um, so there's that, which obviously in years to come, you look back and go, yeah, he was a champion. But the branding side, like I said, if you're someone like Valentino Rossi or if you're Mark Marquez, you then, it, it just becomes synonymous with 46 is a winner's number. 93 never was, is a winner's number. Because the guy running 93 wins all the time. So, you know, it, I, like, I get both sides. And I don't, uh, like, I, I see some people saying that, you know, it's voting or something. I don't think it's that. It's just you want the right to use it and it's number one. But I don't think, as the same as, I, I don't think it's necessarily humility to not wear the number one. It's like, the number one. It's just like, if everybody already knows I'm the best, so why should I you know, have a number for it? Of right. course. I don't think, I think gloating is sort of, a bitter way of being like, oh, he won. It's like, well, yeah, he did. So, like, if he wants to win, right. if he wants to wear number one, let him wear number one. He won. <laughs> when um, I forgot where I was gonna go. Um, the other thing I feel w- with the number one that could be a negative is is it puts a lot of pressure on that rider again, because now they walk. Yeah, you know, every time they look at their bike, it's like, yeah, I won last year, and now I have to try to replicate that. And it can put them under a lot of stress where they're like, if they do not replicate it, it's like, well, they kind of get in their own head where it's like, well, did I, is it because I put the number one on the bike and I didn't do it again? Or, um, you know, it, it just starts to put those negative thoughts. And Bunno, real quick, um, I believe the person on YouTube you were looking for is Chain Bear. Chain Bear, that's it. That's Which, when you started talking about the video, I'm like, well, Chain Bear is the first person that came to my mind, but I'm like, I don't see why he would do a video. He's more of the technical stuff, but no, I found videos four years ago, cars, car and number, car and driver numbers in F1, a short history. There you go. That's the video I'm referring to. If you want to go and learn a bit about like what Elisa mentioned in Williams running zero one year, and then mm-hmm. I believe McLaren won, but then they got dropped to like 24 and 20, or 25 and 26 or something like that because of um, something or other. Or I think Michael Schumacher Ferrari, ran... Uh, actually. Ferrari, Ferrari because... was... Yeah, they dropped and because 27, you know, as an unlucky number, that's also associated with Ferrari. Gilles, yeah. Gilles Villeneuve, he also, he died, but he won that number with Ferrari. Yeah. And that was because they won, but then they switched up with teams and they ran yeah. it and they, they locked the numbers, yeah. Yeah, so like, incidents like that, for example, um, was number F, they got by to switch. And I don't know if 
I, again, I, I'm I'm asking you, Elisa, more than because again, F1, I I didn't watch F1 during the like mid noughties. I've gone back and watched bits and bobs, but not I didn't watch it at the time. But obviously, I remember the massive scandal with McLaren and the one of the directors of like Ferrari and all the printing or something going across to McLaren and being like a huge. Um, Oh, when McLaren like, stole the, like documents. Yeah, did did they yeah, do yeah. anything to the numbers of that or not? No, no. Uh, I mean, there's a great actually a BBC podcast series on that Spygate, and it was actually yeah. it was 2007, the last year Ferrari yeah. won. So yeah, and that was the year Lewis Hamilton started, and they actually they banned them from the constructors' championship. Yeah, so going that's... back to MotoGP, you can rupture it like like Yamaha losing 50 points in 2020. For, for the constructor championship for yeah. but it's yeah but the drivers got to keep their places but the team lost yeah. a lot and they had to pay like like a ridiculous amount of yeah. money for it but yeah anyway yeah so yeah there's there's incidents like that that with the old system if they would have penalized the team even though like the driver would have won the driver would have ran like the lowest number because the team finished like dead last if they'd have carried yeah. it. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's sort of weird how numbers used to work. And then I think it was like 2013 or something in F1, they were like, right, no, pick your own number, branding, everything else. Like they just went from from there, which in today's day just makes more sense. You don't want to chop and change right. numbers. Um so yeah, bit of a bit of a nerdy history on uh on numbers there, which is not something I was expecting to get into like. But yeah, with Pekka running number one, we'll see if he gets to defend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, that does it for the news today. So uh, before we head out, we're going to make one quick announcement. Um, so January 19th marked the one-year anniversary of our Instagram account. Um, we started it with the hopes of broadening our audience. Uh, we saw other accounts that were doing really great things on Instagram. We wanted to try to be a part of that you know, little family. Um, then we created it and we never really did anything with it. So we started trying to think of ways we could utilize it more and an idea we had, and I, we're going to, I'm going to do it particularly, um, being that I am a newer MotoGP fan, I don't know a lot of these races that Josh and Bono talk about because I've never seen them. So being that I have the MotoGP video pass, I thought it'd be a cool idea to go back to the first full season that the uh, video pass offers and watch GP races up until we catch up. Um, The first season is is 2002. So that was the first season for the 990s? No, it's the first MotoGP. First MotoGP season. Yeah. Yeah. So... because I remember, I know that year was the year they went to four stroke. Mm-hmm. There were still two strokes. So, what were the GP bikes then? Were they eight hundreds or nine nineties or? Um, they would have moved to nine nineties, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's something interesting we're gonna do. Um, we're not sure the upload schedule yet. Um, I I'm gonna try to do it once a day, like every day. Um, yeah, except for weekend. <laughs> and if he's way... gonna be watching it like and, 30 years on. Well, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um so the way we're we're figuring out it's gonna work is I'll watch the race and then I'll get on Instagram 
and do a little video. I think the max up, upload video time on Instagram is like 10 minutes, so we'll keep it under 10 minutes. But just basically what I saw in the race, different you know, trends in MotoGP, you know, I'm a very, I, I'm an automotive technician. So, you know, maybe different things I noticed with the technology and the way the bikes are trending, stuff like that. Um, so we did, I did the math since 2002, there has been 371 race weekends. <laughs> and just, just before he carries on I, for anyone listening that thinks, is this guy mental? I have warned him. I have warned it. Yes. So they don't they don't have any commentary on them, the older races. Some so of them you're don't, just, no. just, just well, gonna have to watch yeah. the bikes. I mean I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but just saying like as someone who hasn't watched, like coming in there, they're like, Who are these guys? Like I, I mm -hmm. have no yeah, idea. Yeah, the starting grid you're gonna have to like revise before you get into it. Like who's number three? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that guy like Yeah, they don't and, even have the order like constantly up. Right. And one of the things I looked into was doing every race across all three classes. And I, I did the math. We would, I would be doing this series for the next five years. That's if you did if it I, every day. If I did, if I did Moto 3 or 125 Moto 3, 250 Moto 2, and Moto GP, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, took the weekend off. It would take me five years to do this. Imagine and then, like and Christmas then quickly day, went away. Yeah, Christmas Day, <laughs> no, his kids are like, Santa, Santa, Santa. And he's like, forget Santa. It's 250 Bruno 2006. Like, that's what we're watching. <laughs> but I just figured it'd be something neat to do. See, you know. That's definitely something to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You definitely filled your calendar well, out there. Yeah. And with MotoGP, if I just doing the GP class, it's like a year and a half. So it's oh. it's not that bad. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Um, it was, it's something uh, we came up with as a way to help utilize the Instagram. You know, yeah, try to get more people listening to the show and stuff like that. So we're not going to just post that there. We are going to post like various other content. Oh, yeah. So um, yeah, there is going to be that intertwined with a race. He, he seems to think he's going to do every day. I've said that I think he'll lose his sanity by at least a month <laughs> in. Um, however, like... Time, two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. it's one of those where, like, I, I have referenced some really old races. Like, you know, I remember referencing 2003 Phillip Island, 2004 Mugello, and Matt's just like, yeah, I've got no idea. But I do remember, <laughs> Matt, at one stage, you sort of went back and watched a race from 2000 whenever, and... You were like, oh, I can't remember which race it was, but I was watching it yesterday, and you said it, and I was like, oh, 2006, da da da, da. Mm. You were like, yeah, it was that race. If you are not like that with me and Elisa after <laughs> doing this, if we're not like, you know, oh, the, it was a race, I think, in the mid 2000s and you're not like FP3, you know, mm. South Africa 2004, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I've went back and watched that crash. Then, realistically, you're not doing your job right, is basically what I'm trying to right. say. Um, yeah. but again, we'll see. I think it's more of an endurance than it is an actual just oh, yeah, sort of and hobby. I think it, it will literally be if if Matt in a year's time is still doing it every day, then I will tip my hat to you. I genuinely, I, I will buy you a pint, whether it be across yeah. the pond, I will I will send you the money, <laughs> to buy you a pint, send me the money, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's like, oh, how much? I mean, and I've seen other series like this attempt something similar. There was a uh, uh, a YouTube show called Relapped, which was this woman named Deanna who was going through and watching old F1 races. It was race. awesome. Yeah, I, I've watched them. Okay. It, well, yes, and it's awesome. She, she was doing it where it wasn't every day. She would upload like once a week or something like that. And because she's sane. <laughs> and like, well, and some of the early races, she was, she started in like the seventies watching F1. There was no commentary. The videos were blurry. And it, I, I looked her up the other day. She hasn't posted in like seven months. Probably because she went mad. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> This is like, like I get ambitious plans, but like every day, every day, like Matt, Matt brought this idea to me around like a week ago and I responded with, why don't you try doing some of the historical races or maybe like <laughs> do, go and go through the, the seasons of like 2002 and look up what are like some of the best races and watch two or three a year and just mm. give, you know, a good analysis of two or three a year across maybe a week or two weeks. And then Matt came back to me literally in like an hour or so after the like phone call ended and was like, "I've, I've, I, you know, I've gone through everything we've been through. I'm doing it every day." It was like day. twelve I was hours. Like, I was like, "Great, okay. I mean, go with that." But if you start complaining, have how ridiculous that is to keep a track of. Don't say I didn't warn you and suggest a more like sane idea. Yeah, yeah, I'm planning on going back and watching more older seasons, but I'm not going to promise to talk about that at the moment. Yeah. I can, I can join it like season review of 2008 in five years time when you get yes yeah. <laughs> so that'll do it for today uh please be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at red sector moto gp uh, again you can follow myself at matt polanski one on all social media you can follow Bono at bunno gp underscore on twitter and bunno gp on uh, instagram uh i forgot to mention josh earlier you can follow him on twitter at red sector josh and follow Lisa at I'll let you put your socials out there because they're sp- like your twi- your Instagram. I don't even know how to begin to pronounce that. Yeah, it's a Finnish name, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Elisa Vihde. I can tag it somewhere. We can probably tag it somewhere. Yeah. Twitter, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that'll do it for today. And with that, keep the throttle pinned. <laughs>